Hello and welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, your weekly cybersecurity news and threat research podcast brought to you by the ReliQuest threat research team. My name is Chris and I'll be your host this week and I'm joined by two of my colleagues. So first up we have George on the line. How are you doing George? Very good. This is uh, early morning Friday. It certainly is. Thank you, as always, for uh, dragging yourself onto the podcast. Much appreciated. And we also have (laughs) no worries. And we also have Kim on the line. How's things, Kim? Hello. Good. Thanks. Nearing the end of my day in London, so topping and tailing Friday. Yep. I also am also at the end of my day, so very much appreciative of that fact. Uh, So we have quite a interesting podcast ahead of us today. Uh, This week, we'll be deep diving into a recent vulnerability affecting Cisco iOS XE software. Uh, We'll also uh, look at recent research that was uh, put out this week uh, by ReliQuest into business email compromise attacks before finally looking at reporting on the social media platform Discord, which is reportedly being used to host malicious content. But first up, I'd like to give uh, George an opportunity just to uh, explain a recent role change that uh, he's been lucky enough to to go through. Um, so would you like to tell our listeners about your, your role change, George, and how that might influence your observations on the podcast? Yeah, no problem. Um, basically, I recently moved to a security architect position at ReliQuest. The role looks at uh, customer security posture in a more holistic approach, so you could see like a bird's eye view. And basically that identifies any gaps that they might have in either mitigation or detection or anything else that they would need and that needs to be addressed. Um, The architects at security architects at ReliQuest could be considered a high level consultant for our customers. And we offer like technical expertise for any issues the customer might have and also help them grow their security posture, right? And coverage and all that stuff. Um, A lot of people like metaphors. So if you want to see it in a metaphor, we are like the quarterback for customer's DIR solution. I know that everybody loves acronyms. So DIR is basically detection, investigation, and response. And we basically make sure that our customers are getting the, you know, security that they need. Uh, From the roles perspective, I don't think anything will change with the podcast because I'm still being, um, you know, very aware of what's going on. And I'm looking at the threat landscape for all our customers. So me looking into that holistic uh, approach, I'm still doing the same things that I was doing as a threat hunter, uh, just a more generalized form, and I'm addressing any threats our customers would have in their respective sectors. Good stuff. Have you changed your LinkedIn profile to reflect your new role as uh, the quarterback of the IR team? Are are you referring to yourself as that in the office? Is that fair to say? not yet, to be honest. I've been very busy since the move. A lot of things have been going on, and uh, I will do soon. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, it doesn't make any difference. But I guess to anyone else that is looking into what I'm doing, <laughs> that would be an update. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, first and foremost, congratulations on your new role. Uh, very much, really interesting development. So uh, yeah, congrats on on that new uh, new position. Uh, Let's move to the first topic of the day, which, as I mentioned, uh, relates to a new uh, maximum security authentication bypass uh, zero day uh, affecting Cisco iOS software. 
that let's unauthor oh, I can't even pronounce words today. It's a Friday, you can tell folks. Unauthenticated, there we go. Attackers gain full administrator privileges uh, in order to take complete control of affected routers and switches remotely. Cisco say the critical vulnerability, which is tracked as CVE 2023-20198. Um, and actually, I, I, as far as I'm aware, is still waiting for a patch. Only affects devices with the web user interface feature enabled, uh, which also has the HTTP or HTTPS server feature toggled on. So kind of interesting sort of um, detail there. So first up, George, could you provide our listeners with uh, a bit more of an overview than the one I just provided there of the vulnerability in question? Yeah, so basically it only affects uh, devices that are Cisco iOS XC software. Uh, not every listener of ours would have the same software on their devices, but one thing to be sure is if you have that, then you have to check this other stuff. Um, the account that these basically threat actors are able to access the web UI through HTTP or HTTPS servers. And once they access there, they get the same configuration access as someone that is an administrator level and that they can create accounts or make configuration changes. Now, Cisco basically said that this should have never been uh, publicly accessible. And it makes sense because what they want us to check for security is if the HTTP server or HTTP secure server commands are available in the configuration uh, settings and they're basically toggled on. They don't necessarily specify the HTTPS server command which it suggests that this was more like for internal access. So you could think about it this way. Uh, all administrators in uh, an environment basically would be able to access the um, device web UI and do administrative work through it, right? But this was never intended to be publicly accessible. Given that this was publicly accessible and that it had the powers for you know, threat actors basically uh, creating accounts and taking over the device, it became a big deal. Uh, the other thing that a lot of research shows is that this kind of configuration uh, requires that the, the attackers are a little sophisticated and maybe they did some vulnerability uh, scanning on the device, as in like they had the device itself and started looking into how it works and how they could break it, uh, which shows, shows a level of sophistication, right? Um, the management surface themselves, basically, they don't have a patch yet, but they're saying that if you disable these server uh, features, then you would not be exposed to it. That's interesting. So what you're saying is essentially this is almost a misconfiguration on the user side that allows threat actors to exploit this issue in the first place. And the only actors who would be kind of aware of this would be kind of sophisticated attackers that you know are actually conducting reconnaissance ahead of time so with that in mind even though there's no patch it, it seems to be that you know if, that there's a really obvious fix to this apply that and you should be good is that am i right in, in thinking that yes but it's not necessarily the uh, user's fault in this case it was just a uh, something that cisco missed on the basically the servers being what you call it, accessible uh, on a public site, right? They wanted these to be accessible, but not to everybody outside, only to the internal network. 
Um, so of course, a lot of people that will have communications running through their devices over HTTP or HTTPS for whatever services, they would have to go into more detailed recommendation and follow the specific uh, web UI, this uh, basically uh, disabling that function versus disabling the whole HTTP, HTTPS communication because they will need those on. Uh, Cisco recommendation basically details everything they need to do for this. Okay, good stuff. Uh, what do we actually know of the threat groups exploiting the bug? So I know you kind of alluded that they were sophisticated. Do we have any further details? You know, what's the risk from these these particular threat groups? There is no attribution right now. So uh, the way they're seeing it is that it might be a small group of threat actors that figured out the exploit and then shared it with other people. So there is not necessarily a group associated with it. Uh, Cisco basically discovered this because they started getting multiple support Cisco TA, TAC cases, which basically means uh, their customers were reporting anomalies going on with their devices. And once Cisco started investigating it, they were like, something's going on, and further investigation showed up the exploit. Um, and basically, you could consider it an exploit, but to them it was more like, a, oh, this should not be publicly accessible, right? So threat actors are exploiting it. This was a misconfiguration issue. Okay. So uh, not too many details on that at the moment. Um, so you mentioned that Cisco had released what I guess like an advisory telling users on exactly what they need to do. Uh, what what did that outline? So the advisory is asking them to look into the configurations and see if the IP HTTP server and IP HTTP server secure uh, um, are visible in the configuration and disable those for the for the devices that have the Cisco um, iOS XC software. But if we want to address the issue here, it would be more like the risk that it poses, right? So once attackers basically are able to exploit this, they would be able to make an account, get access to the uh, device itself, monitor the network, like the traffic. They would be able to move internally into the environment and perform man-in-the-middle attacks, which basically means they're sitting between a, a user and a service, and they can dictate what goes to the service, uh, right, like to the destination, and they can either read or change things about it. Uh, they could modify network routing rules, which basically means they could duplicate traffic and exfiltrate data if they want to, or just basically um, have traffic redirect somewhere else and we've seen that with uh, BC methods where they redirect emails, for example, to avoid people knowing what's going on. Or they could totally open ports to get access to control servers for exfiltration. So we're going with like what the listeners should do right now. They should know if their devices running the software have the web UI uh, enabled, and they should take all the actions that Cisco is saying about figuring out if their uh, web UI is enabled and disabling it. Um, there's actually a proof that a lot of people can run to see if there is a malicious implant on the compromised Cisco ISA. And this is more for the technical people, but basically you would have to run a curl uh, request with uh, dash k dash x post, and it would be HTTPS uh, semicolon slash slash device IP slash web UI slash logout confirm dot HTML question mark, logon 
underscore hash equals one. All that does is basically checks if the web UI service is live and they're therefore that you are you know ex exploitable or like you are vulnerable to it. Uh, I was literally just typing uh, a message to you both stating, let's include that on the show notes. Um, that particular command that's definitely worthwhile um, cheering in, uh, it's, I guess, a physical form. So it, it sounds like there's a, a good remediation to this. And, you know, we're hoping that, you know, this hasn't been exploited on our listeners' particular uh, networks, but this is definitely something that needs to be addressed as a priority, I suppose. Uh, Good stuff. Uh, let's move on to the second topic of the day, which relates to business email compromise activity. Um, so, of course, business email compromise is you know, one of the most common forms of kind of financial theft or, or cybercrime that we're seeing on customer networks. Has been a problem for quite a while, uh, but we have seen uh, this particular attack type uh, trending in the last 12 months, which is why we put out the research uh, to ReliQuest customers in the last week. So I guess first over to you, Kim, could you provide our listeners with kind of a, an overview about business email compromise in general? You know, for those that are unaware, you know, what is this particular attack? Sure. So business email compromise in its simplest form is a social engineering attack, but it's just quite a sophisticated one. It's often targeted towards bigger co corporations who are dealing in lots of money and conducting large financial transactions, often with overseas partners and using um, kind of financial transaction systems that, that go overseas. Threat, threat actors will often target or try to impersonate um, people who are in high level C-suite positions, those working in financial roles as well, and even more junior members of staff who are more likely to be tricked. And they will craft um, phishing emails, spear phishing emails with a sense of urgency within them, stating that a payment needs to be made because a deal hangs on it. You know, it needs to be done now. Um, otherwise, the world is going to fall apart to really place pressure on the person receiving that email to make this financial payment this like unregulated financial payment unwittingly into the threat actors um, bank account um so to impersonate these high-ranking financial leaders there's kind of two main methods by which threat actors will do it so they will compromise these individuals actual accounts by either social engineering or phishing but most of the time through credential harvesters and using those credentials to either brute force or log into those accounts and then probably less commonly they might use typo squatted domains and set up emails that resemble the company's actual domain but are not quite quite there um probably what's most sophisticated in these attacks is the level of detail that are included to make them look legitimate and then threat actors will also use email thread hijacking so that's when they can insert their malicious message into an email chain that's already ongoing it just makes it look again more legitimate because you think well I've already been talking to this person about this topic so yeah they must want me to do it um and like george mentioned 
earlier. Threat actors can also set up rules within your inbox if they've got it compromised so that any replies to the email to the malicious emails that they've sent go directly into junk or into your deleted items. So you as the compromised user won't get alerted to um, your account having been compromised. Um, so all of that really leads to significant financial losses for these businesses if those transfers are made. Um, but it also results in the loss of a lot of personal identifiable information as well, PII, which, as we know, can be used in ongoing frauds by threat actors and also sold on cyber criminal forums to make a profit. Good stuff. Uh, well, one thing that I picked out from what you were saying there that kind of took me by surprise is that you know this isn't just directed towards senior figures. It can target more junior members of an organization before that actor kind of moves up the kill chain and moves laterally to I guess the accounts that they actually want to get into. So that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And obviously, as you were saying, there's lots of different ways in which this can occur, but it does kind of fall down to account takeover, you know, compromising someone's credentials ultimately. That we have spoke at length about this on the podcast, the risk posed by just having your credentials compromised. And if you don't have those sufficient controls in place to sort of detect and stop that malicious activity before it occurs. Um, George, just to bounce over to you, how have we actually seen uh, business email compromise used in recent cases on customer environments? Well, yeah, I can talk about it in general, but not on our customer environments. But the the things that we have seen uh, increase is the sophistication, right? So in sophistication, it means that there is a lot of um, man-in-the-middle attacks with phishing nowadays, where they're basically avoiding or bypassing MFA by having the user enter their MFA during the phishing attack itself. And they basically hijack session tokens and all that. Uh, what uh, Kim was basically talking about was spear phishing, which it's usually dedicated and targeted. But there's a lot of attackers that we've seen that are not really that targeted. They just want to find anyone that will give them access, the initial access. And then their second stage approach is basically changing the rules so nobody can basically, you know, see their email as being compromised by all these guys saying, why are you sending me this? And then sending a bunch of malicious emails to everybody in the corporation. So think about it this way. Um, let's take you, for example, Chris, if you don't mind. Uh, we send you a phishing email. You click on it. It looks like the normal portal that you usually look into. And it says, hey, if you want to access this SharePoint file, please log into your portal. You wouldn't think twice about it. You would go into it and you would put your credentials and will ask you for MFA. And you're like, oh yeah, this is fine. You give the MFA, all of a sudden you are in the portal and you get redirected somewhere else. And you're like, oh, what happened? Well, maybe I did not log in in the right portal, but you get redirected to the official request portal, right? So what happened now is all the activity that you did, the thread actor sent to the request, well, it wouldn't work at the request, but this is an example, right? They set it to request and they got that session token to get access into it. And then all of a sudden they have access to your email and they see all the communications you've been doing and they hijack one of them, right? Like you talking to some other colleagues, especially one that is like a long chain with a thousand plus users and they just add something to it. And uh, everybody thinks that it's you, right? And they click on the link. Maybe it's like a go get together event or something. 
and all of a sudden they either drop something malicious into their host or they basically get redirected to somewhere else for more phishing. So the cases we've seen recently have been increasing sophistication and then a decrease in uh, priority. What I mean by that is like they don't necessarily care who the target that you know gets compromises as long as they get in because once they get in they have the whole system figured out on to go from a to z very fast and we've seen like once they get in within 10 minutes they send out 50,000 emails for example and you can imagine how our clients will be very uh <laughs> very what you call it uh pressed because of this right a uh, good thing we have all the mitigations and detections that we can you know offer for the our customers, but logically speaking for anyone else, this would be like what's going on. And then for all those users that actually went and compromised their credentials, you would have to take actions for and you have to go and track down every one of them, right? So it's a lot, a lot of work and they're basically gambling on this saying, hey, if I can get in, there's a high chance that I can get what I want. I was just going to pick you up there, George, because you used me in the example. Of course, I was going to say I would never fall victim to a phishing email, but I'm probably setting myself up for failure there, aren't I? So uh, I'm not going to be that blase. Um, do you both think this is what? what's the reason behind BEC trending upwards? Is this just a continuation of kind of cyber extortion, not cyber extortion, cyber crime in, in general or is there a, a more nuanced reason why we're seeing more of this type of activity? Is it just a, a lack of controls goes going back to the, the issue with credentials, user mismanagement of credentials, that kind of thing? What's the reason behind the, the rise in BEC activity in general? I think firstly, it's that change and increase in sophistication that George was talking about. Um, there's also a lot of phishing kits available in cyber criminal forums that are pretty sophisticated and that can run these kind of campaigns for you. So that's really lowering the barrier to entry for this type of cyber crime. We spoke about the Cisco um, vulnerability and that needing to be quite a sophisticated threat actor in order to exploit it. But for BC with the use of these tools, actually a lot of cyber criminals, even if they're just starting out, can can get involved. And those kits can be tweaked and improved after every successful attack as well. So every time those phishing emails get more um, legitimate looking, more relevant to the to the person they're attacking. Um, I also read online that um, Microsoft have observed BEC campaigns using residential IP addresses as well, rather than um, and no VPNs and and what have you. So that's appearing, making a threat actor look more legitimate, making them look as if they are located near to where you are. If you you're based in the US and you see an African um, IP address from someone you think is down the road from you, then you're going to be suspicious. But if you are in Tampa and you see a Tampa IP address, then perhaps you're less likely to be raised as suspicion. So it's kind of the increase in sophistication is meaning people are more likely to fall for them. So it's kind of a cacophony of errors. Good stuff. Yeah, I suppose if you 
do have an IP address that's co-located to the target you're going after, it's more likely to bypass those security controls and not kind of flag off if 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 it is from a part of the world that's just you know looks suspicious. I guess. Um, I suppose low low overhead to the attacker as well. There's not realistically, it's not a massively sophisticated campaign. Obviously, we have alluded to some relatively sophisticated techniques as part of this, but generally speaking, it can be done by a, a fairly uh, low level attacker or someone without too much um, technical background. So that's interesting. George, any thoughts from you on this one? What, why are we seeing this activity more commonly? Yeah, so Kim was very correct on the kits being sold. Uh, we actually talked in this podcast uh, a few podcasts ago about uh, phishing as a service, and it was like a $30 per month service, and it basically told you everything from A to Z, what you needed to do to have a successful phishing campaign. Now, of course, attackers nowadays don't usually just direct line straight to the victim or to the you know target, but the proxies are available. They actually are sold on the dark web. And what I mean by that is like, these are computers that other people are using, like, you know, normal population that are compromised that the attackers just using as jumping points. So that would be your proxy, right? Like someone's uh, computer that they open once a, a week to read the news, but somehow they clicked on something weird and now they use that IP to be like local in the area. So it's it's a mix of both. The attackers are getting more sophisticated in some cases, but those sophisticated attackers are actually save, se selling services in the dark web, which we've seen with uh, you know our research into the all that uh, dark web activity. And the concept is once these kits are available and basically anyone can use them, what's them what's to stop them? Right? They're basically are, are being told, hey, look, you're going to be untouchable. You can do it from wherever you are. You will look like you're from Florida. And unless someone really cares and really looks you down, you won't, you know, be. Um, <laughs> there's not going to be any repercussions for this, right? So they're, they're of course going to do it. Uh, so it's become easier for sure to attack. And then on the other side, social engineering, it's one of those things that even in pen testing, it's not considered a fair value because it's the easiest way to get inside, right? Like every other technique. You could like put mitigation and security and all that. Social engineering has like almost a 99% chance because depending on the threat actor and how skilled they are into engineer someone into doing something, they can get anything out of it. Yeah, with so many different cases that kind of come to mind when you're talking about that, you know, the, the immediate one that came to my mind was just lapsus, obviously targeting these big tech companies with massive security budgets and they still manage to find a way in. Is, is the the easiest way and i also thought you know law enforcement jurisdictions as well if you are based in a part of the world where there is a lack of jurisdiction for by law enforcement if they're targeting companies based in the west um what what have they got to lose really what have they got to lose by by conducting this kind of type of activity um massive profits and it's like we said not not too much overhead for the actual attacker themselves uh what do our listeners actually need to do to ensure they don't fall victim to this type of attack. Uh, attack. Uh, I'll pose this one to you, Kim, to start with. Um, I think we talked a lot about phishing involved in this attack. So, I mean, the at the basic level, user awareness around phishing and spotting things, and it, especially with this 
um, email hijacking technique that we see in these campaigns, like encouraging your staff to not be afraid about double checking things, using a different communication method. If someone texts you when they wouldn't normally, then you know, send them an email, send them a message on whatever instant message platform you use and and vice versa. If you get an email from someone that you think is a bit suspicious, just just check it out, because I think most people would rather you double check than end up losing thousands and thousands of pounds. Um, and for credentials, protecting your credentials, obviously you, you can implement MFA, but that's not a fail safe. So people can read our spotlight on MFA bypass techniques to see how they can improve that and, and use that to help harden credentials. Fabulous and really good shout out to the uh, research we've done on MFA bypass techniques. Really good shout. George, any final comments from you on this one before we move on? No, Kim said everything. Basically, our MFA bypass uh, block spot has a very good documentation on the techniques used and they have very good recommendations too. So I'm I'm going to let everyone go and read it and get that recommendation because that was from Marcella, uh, Thread Hunter at RQ. She's, she's great. She did a great job. Fabulous. I'll make sure to include that particular. Uh, we do have a blog on the uh, the report we just mentioned there. So I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. I will just quickly shout out, we have a webinar on business email compromise that will be going live on the 2nd of November. That's been led by a threat hunt team uh, that will explore a lot of the cases we mentioned there in detail on, on BEC activity. So definitely go check that one out too. Let's move on to the, the last item for today on the social media platform Discord, which reportedly continues to be a breeding ground for malicious activity by a number of different threat groups, uh, but now include APT groups, advanced persistent threat groups, with it being commonly used to distribute malware, exfiltrate data, uh, and also used by threat actors to steal authentication tokens. So a new report by security researchers has explained that the platform is being adopted by APT groups who uh, are being, well, they're essentially using Discord to target critical infrastructure. Uh, and despite the growing scale of the issue in recent years, Discord has reportedly been unable to implement effective measures to deter cyber criminals or decisively address a problem or even just to limit it. So, George, could you provide your perspective on this issue um, and what kind of options we've had from uh, looking at this this particular social media platform? Yeah, and this is one of those um, topics that, um, given that I've actually perform threat hunting on this and we as a team is looking into that we have a lot of information this might be a little rant but you know bear with me uh given that discord is very popular among gamers you can think about it a whole generation of like young adults that have utilized it with that and then you know carry on and use it for their personal reasons uh the platform itself is free to use and of course this means that it offers like a lot of benefits and given that it doesn't necessarily require much to uh, get access to, it's very, uh, what you call it, interesting for malicious actors. So what the malicious actors was ac will actually utilize will be the content deliver delivery network, also known as CDN. Uh, basically in Discord, you can make an account, right? And then in that account, any files you share will be linked and be possible to get those files 
through a URL that basically calls the CDN network of Discord for the Discord app and the attachment with your ID and basically the chat ID. So what this does is it allows attackers to basically send themselves or other people, right, private messages with files uh, that are attached attachments to the chat and then go get these files through the URL that Discord provides from anywhere. It's it doesn't necessarily have to, uh, you know, you being able to be on Discord or any of that. You can just get that attachment. And now, of course, if you think about it this way, this is uh, very similar to uh, IPFS and Telegram, which basically are other free ways attackers have been used using this kind of systems. Uh, the upload files itself are utilized to drop malware or tools, and the hosts that are compromised not necessarily have defenses for Discord because Discord is not considered a threat destination or domain. Um, now there's a new feature that attackers are using now from Discord, which are utilizing this feature to perform exfiltration from a compromised host. So this feature is the web hooks that uh, Discord allows. So what this does is basically the attacker can create a private chat and then the private chat will have a channel and in this channel, you could create a webhook, which is a direct communication straight to the channel and straight to the server. So what attackers are doing is they're utilizing this system to perform exfiltration from a compromised machine straight to the server that they personally own on Discord with this uh, system. And this is utilized in Discord API, which again reminds me of Telegram C2 API utilization. It's very similar, so attackers are basically using any open source that they find reasonable and that has good features to abuse it. In the past and still today, most APTs were staying away from Discord because we have to think it this way. Discord has access to all these chats and all these data, and threat actors don't like to not be in control of their own C2. Uh, but as always, you know, if it's easy, why not do it? Uh, there is well-known loaders like Smoke Loader and Short Loader that are deploying stealers through Discord CDN, which basically means that they uh, are, you know, engineering users to download suspicious or malicious uh, software that looks like it's malvertising, right? Like a software that, or maybe an add-on that they think that it's good. And then once they install that, they use the CDN from Discord to install list loaders, right? Um, so if you think about it this way, Discord is being transformed into the threat actor's perspective from something that they were not so uh, attracted to, to something that is very good and that they can utilize within certain risks, right? And the risk for them are basically Discord uh, cutting down that access and figuring out what they're doing and stopping it. Uh, but otherwise, hey, it's free. <laughs> I was just going to ask you this question. Should this platform, if you're an organization, should this be uh, deny listed? You know, obviously it's a legitimate platform, big amounts of users, like you say, very commonly used by gamers, but it's being used in this malicious manner. Unless there's a business reason for being on there, do you think that companies should just ban going on there? What, what's your thoughts on that? No, basically, when it comes to the business and to in the workforce, anything that you don't use for your business reasons should be blocked, right? 
unless it's providing some kind of feature or information that you will need during your normal work. Like we don't have Discord, we can't access it. And I know a lot of our customers that have that blocked. And you would see it because, like I said, during hunting, uh, you would see stuff like the malicious payload is trying to access CDN Discord and it gets blocked by firewall. Why? Because the customer says we don't need Discord and block the whole domain, right? Uh, so things like that, uh, these are always things that people should keep in mind into what are we accessing? Do we need to access those uh, resources? And if not, why don't we block them to block potential security risks? I suppose in a very generalized way, you can almost kind of view it in the same way as like torrenting sites, things of that nature. Like there's absolutely no reason for you as an employee to be going on there on a corporate device. Um, so just don't do it ultimately. Um, Kim, I know you looked into this particular platform a while back. Did you find anything of interest when kind of looking at this particular new story? Yeah, so I George mentioned several times, this is all done within private chats and within private servers. So the nature of Discord means that you can find as many public servers and join as many public servers as you like. But if you want to join a pub, a private server, then you need an invite code. Um, and sometimes those invite codes can be um, available on forums or like not just cyber criminal forums, like gaming forums, any anywhere that people might use Discord. Um, but what I found within my research is that malware isn't something that's really openly discussed in Discord, there are private servers that do conduct criminality, but it's overwhelmingly fraud based. It's kind of account takeover, it's carding, it's discount codes, which is really useful for us with our digital risk protection hats on because we can help customers monitor for abuses of their brands and things like that. Um, but in terms of seeing what George is seeing from a threat hunting perspective, you just don't see it from within the Discord platform itself. Interesting. So we obviously we have a visibility of everything going on there. But what you're saying is a lot of this is quite low level, like brand infringements, carding, like theft of sort of intellectual property, that kind of thing. Is, is that what we're seeing on a, a lower level that is, is yeah. shared on and those semi-public? channels so that that's still happening in private channels but the invites for those channels are a bit more widely available which is how we've um, been able to see what's been going on um, and I think that comes with the level of sophistication as well that these people are potentially not expecting researchers or law enforcement to perhaps be in there or maybe they just don't care and so are ha happy to speak about it openly you know these servers also get shut down by discord quite a lot they'll get flagged as um criminal or um breaching discord mm. terms and conditions but like george said again it's free it's really easy to set up servers so if they get shut down just pop up another one and then share those invite codes in in the way that they did in the initial um setup interesting so very easy for actors to set up these channels and kind of take it down as well if, if they do feel they've been 
otherwise compromised by law enforcement or security researchers. Uh, last question to you both, you know, what's the out outlook for Discord as a communications channel, you know, with regards to kind of malicious activity? You sort of alluded to this before, George, but is this going to turn into a new version of, of Telegram for cyber criminals, do you think? Uh, personally, I do believe that it will be utilized more in the future. Telegram was the same in the beginning. It was just, you know, a uh, competitor to a lot of Twitter or whatever. Uh, but it was like open source and people loved that and started using it. And then all of a sudden, threat actors believed that, oh, look, this has so many features we can use. And now it's become a hotbed for it, right? Like it's utilized for everything. Uh, Discord is a very good uh, platform. So I'm assuming that they will take, you know, action to this and like block a lot of it or maybe require like more stringent authentication procedures, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I believe that we as threat, hunt, uh, threat hunters and, you know, likewise in general, we look at things into multiple ways. And one of the, th the concepts here would be, is this something that it's easy to use and that threat actors have access to? Yes. Will they use it in the future? Yes. It's, it's that easy. It's human nature, right? Like if you have it there, why not use it? Uh, same thing with BCs and same thing with everything else we've talked about today. Uh, actors, threat actors are not necessarily going for that super, you know, legendary hack. They just want something quick and easy. And if they can get in, they can get in with whatever methods. Good stuff. Good stuff. I was just going to say, I wondered if if Discord maybe kind of like know your customer type procedures would be useful in sort of minimizing this activity. But I just wonder if that kind of goes against the the sort of outlook or the um, the ethos of, of Discord as a channel. But um, Certainly interesting to see that this has been used in, in such a, a manner. Go on, Kim, I see you come off, off mute. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that this is a problem Discord has been trying to tackle for a while, but hasn't quite fully got a grasp on it. Because I think that by tackling, tackling it fully, they're going to compromise what the platform does for legitimate users. So it's, it's that fine balance. But from having been in there myself, like a lot of channels... You're supposed to be over 16 to use Discord, but all you have to do is check a box. There's no checks going on. All you need is an email address to log up to the lo log in and sign up to the platform. So there is potentially more they can do in terms of ensuring the users are who they say they are. Good stuff. Yeah, maybe kind of uploading um, proof of your identity you know passports driving license that kind of thing to prove you who you are before actually signing up to the service but again i'm not sure how that would work with the the ethos of the platform good stuff um all right let's close there i'll just quickly mention again we we do have that webinar coming up on business email compromise activity that we've observed uh, in recent months that's going to go ahead on the 2nd of November uh, so I'll make sure to include a registration for that particular webinar uh, of course the just to mention back to the MFA bypass blog that will also be attached to the show notes for this podcast definitely go check that one out um, if you like the podcast if you found it really informative today definitely give us a like uh, subscribe to on your respective podcasting platform tell a friend all really helps with our reach and identifying new listeners uh, other than that that's it for today stay safe and we'll see you next week bye